Supply chain issues. This term has been burned into our brains over the last few years and has been used as an excuse to the point of cliche. But what exactly does the supply chain consist of and how will its disruption, record inflation and geopolitical volatility lead to a global economic catastrophe? This is the subject of the new book by New York Times bestselling author and editor of the financial newsletter Strategic Intelligence, James Rickards. It's titled Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chains, Surging Inflation and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. James, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Trey. Great to be with you. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? Uh, a couple of things. Number one, the, the supply chain problems are obvious to most people. You know, you go to the grocery store. It's not that every shelf is bare. It's not like East Germany in the 1950s, but there's always something missing. You know, one day it could be, uh, you know, your favorite spaghetti sauce. Another time it's bread or whatever, but the paper goods aisle half cleared out. Uh, so people know about the supply chain breakdown, supply chain failures. But I want to kind of dive into it. First of all, uh, talk a lot more about it anecdotally, what was going on, uh, then what caused it. And that's really the big thing. People say, well, you know, I've been shopping for 40 years, never had a problem. Uh, now, all of a sudden, I can't get this, I can't get that. Uh, why is that? What's what's going on? So we explain it in a lot of detail, what exactly broke, uh, how it broke, how it affected the supply chain. Then in chapter three, we look forward and say, well, this is not coming back. The the you know the old the supply chain you're used to, the all the choices, all the goods, et cetera, we're not getting back to that anytime soon. We will eventually, but it's going to take years to fix this. Uh, and the new supply changes from an economic point of view will look very different, meaning different countries, different participants, et cetera. Um, and then from there, when I when I was uh, organizing this book last year uh, with my editor, we, we talked about what we just what you and I just discussed, which is um, you know the the supply chain, what's going on, how it broke, what does the future look like? And my editor said, well, we have to have a chapter on inflation. I said, of course, you know the supply chain is causing the inflation. But then I, said, I raised my hand and said, I want a chapter on deflation because that's next, and people don't see that coming. It would be very helpful to explain. Uh, how and why that is. So that's that's kind of the outline of the book. But it was really um, uh, some of it's uh, you know, predictive analytics, some of it's economic analysis, but a lot of it is just you know kind of plain English explanation of what happened. And people really want to know about that because they're they're they see the result, but they don't know the cause. And if you you can explain the cause, it doesn't fix the problem overnight, but it uh, at least people feel they can kind of deal with it or understand it. And while people may have a basic understanding of what the supply chain is, one of the first things that you do in your book is to really explain the extent of it all. Like I was talking about this interview with my wife yesterday and we were driving and she's like, what do you mean by the uh, the extensive nature of the supply chain? And I pointed to a stop sign. I'm like, look, look at that stop sign right now and think of every ounce of effort that it took to produce every little thing that's a part of that stop sign to transport those materials to another place to either put the stop sign together or to bunch it all together. And then the uh, travel that's required to get that stop sign to this neighborhood and to every other neighborhood where you see a stop sign in this country. That exists for every product, which is something that was pointed out in this book. And I think a great example that you give is something that many of us have in our pockets right now, the iPhone. So maybe for a good description of what the supply chain consists of in terms of just how comprehensive it is in this country and worldwide, what does it take to make every single iPhone, James? Well, actually, it's interesting. Uh, Apple has released some of that information, not their secret technology, but sort of their supply chain. 
uh, and they source uh, the uh, the iPhone parts from uh, 26 countries uh, or more, you know, depending on the particular model. Some things come from Germany, some things come from Japan. Uh, they're assembled in China. Everyone says, you know, iPhones are made in China. It's not exactly true. They're assembled in China, but the parts come from all over the world. Uh, and of course, the technology is developed in California, and they've got to be shipped to you know Brazil or whoever is buying it, et cetera. So that is quite an extensive supply chain. There's an even a, a simpler example. I actually talk about a loaf of bread. So you go to the store and there's a loaf of bread. And, and you, if you ask someone, say, what's the supply chain for the loaf of bread? We'll say, well, there's a bakery on the other side of town. They bake it. They bring it over here and I buy it. Okay. That's a very simple supply chain. But uh, let's just think about that. Now, the loaf of bread has a wrapper. It could be plastic or paper. Where'd that come from? You know, where'd the plastic come from to make the wrapper for the loaf of bread? Oh, it was delivered here by truck. Well, who made the truck? You know, and where the driver come from, get his or her training. And you got diesel in the truck. And and by the way, everything you mentioned, Trey, in the stop sign example, and that's a good one, runs on energy because the the either the, the machinery, the manufacturing, the transportation, et cetera, pretty much all runs on diesel or something off the power grid. So then you say, well, okay. Came by truck. It's complicated. Got diesel fuel. That's you need a refinery for that. Uh, who baked the bread? Well, the, well, the baker. Well, they used an oven. Where'd the oven come from? Well, you know, it's got tempered glass and steel and thermostats and semiconductors. So that means that came from all over the world from some oven manufacturer, but they had their own supply chain. Um, and then where did the uh, baker get the flour? Well, got it from the mill. Oh, okay. Well, how'd the mill get the make the make the flour? Well, they had to get wheat. Where'd they get the wheat? Well, they got it from a farm. Where? How did it get from the farm to the mill? What well, was a train or a truck? Again, drivers, engineers, diesel, et cetera. Let's go all the way back to the farm. Uh, where'd they get the seeds and uh, and the diesel? And they need tractors and harvesters and help. And um, then they and they get fertilizer. You get nitrogen fertilizer to to grow the wheat. Where does fertilizer come from? Well, it turns out a lot of it comes from Russia. And they're in a war with Ukraine. You can go on and on and on, but you take the point. Uh, and by the way, everything I mentioned, you know, the truck, the fuel, the driver, the the oven, the 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 fertilizer has its own supply chain. If you think of a vertical, sorry, horizontal supply chain, which is called the extended supply chain, that's what we were just talking about. But every point of intersection has a vertical supply chain where those people have their own supply chain. So you very quickly get to the point where you say, okay, the supply chain is not part of the economy. The supply chain is the economy. There's nothing you can think of, tangible or intangible. Um, you know, this the, the the wall behind me, the microphone I'm talking to, the clothes I'm wearing, the food I'll have for lunch, et cetera. It all comes from supply chains. And so um, when they break down, it affects everything. We take it for granted. We don't really think much about it. But but once you do, when you kind of think about it in the ways we've been discussing, you realize, oh, yeah, everything depends on everything else. And it's a large, complex, dynamic system. And the characteristic of complex dynamic systems is it just takes a very small break to cause the whole thing to collapse. Yeah, and uh, seemingly infinite connections there. And while the supply chain isn't necessarily a new concept, you say that the science of their management is. What do you mean by this? So the supply chains aren't new. They, as I say, they've been around from the Bronze Age uh, even earlier. What is new, and this really started in 1989, and this is what you were referring to, Trey, is what I call supply chain science, uh, where it was a combination of things. So it was increased computing power, uh, better applied mathematics algorithms, uh, artificial intelligence, better sources of data, 
so that you could actually tackle some of the problems and not just say, oh, yeah, I hope, hope the delivery shows up, but plan it out every step of the way. And that happened around the same time as some major geopolitical events. So starting with the um, fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, uh, the demise of the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, there was in 1992, you had Deng Xiaoping's uh, Southern tour. You know, China had been growing in the 80s, but then was put in the penalty box after Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. But by 1992, we were, things were getting back to normal. And he did a Southern tour to really encourage direct foreign investment in China and Chinese exports. And that took off and they've, they've never looked back since. So um, and that's when we went from kind of international trade and international finance to globalization. I remember in the nineties, uh, you know, my, my children and, and, you know, their peers and, college friends and so forth. We're all talking about globalization, globalization. I've been doing international work for years, uh, but that was kind of a new buzzword, but it really was different because now for the first time since uh, before World War II, China was in the game. Russia was in the game. Um, a lot of new republics emerged, the stands, you know, Kazakhstan, Tur uh, Tajikistan, uh, uh, Turkmenistan and others in Central Asia, the Iron Curtain was down, et cetera. So we, we we had a true globalization and all this science. And that's when the supply chain um, uh, science took off. Now, what was the goal? The goal was always efficiency, make it cheaper, faster, better, more efficient. And the supply chains now went from Shangsheng to New York or Shanghai to Amsterdam. These were 9,000 mile supply chains. And it actually worked. The, the efficiency side of it worked. Uh, which meant lower costs, and that either means higher profits for the participants or lower costs for consumers, but it was actually both. Both of those things emerged. You know, when Walmart says, uh, you know, everyday low low prices, they mean it, and that's how they deliver it. But uh, there were hidden costs that were not taken into account, and the hidden costs were when you make the supply chain that big, it is extremely frail. It is extremely fragile, and just a simple breakdown in one part can throw the whole thing out of whack. So you were getting lower costs at the store. That was true. But we're, we're now we're saying the fact that you can't get things at all because of the breakdown. That's that's really the hidden cost. I'll give you one uh, concrete example. So Germany, you know, is world famous for its car manufacturing. You've got uh, Mercedes and BMW and Porsche and Audi and Volkswagen and others. And these very sophisticated uh, assembly lines. Well, in a car, there's about 100 miles of wire. People don't realize it, but there is because you've got to connect uh, you know, different things and sensors and, and uh, functions and communication, telecommunications, et cetera. Well, you can't just throw the wires on the floor. Obviously, they put them in a, a conduit, a plastic conduit. And that's one, that's one of the first things that goes into a car on the assembly line. You can't put that in at the end. You have to put it in at the beginning and get everything right. Well, it turns out those plastic conduits for the wires in a car are made in Ukraine. Well, there's a war going on in Ukraine. So all of a sudden they couldn't get those parts. So they were shutting down major uh, you know, BMW and Audi and Volkswagen assembly lines in Germany because they couldn't get one plastic part from Ukraine. Now you, you, know, you call around and you substitute and eventually you'll find another provider and you'll get it. But that's an example of the, what I call the hidden cost of the vulnerability of the supply chain, where, as I say, one missing part can shut down a whole assembly line. Yeah, and we'll certainly get to uh, how the 
Ukraine war, how the pandemic have affected the current supply chain woes. But uh, as far as this current situation goes and the uh, perilous nature of things, why is January 23rd, 2017, such an important date here? Well, January 23rd, 2017 uh, uh, was the um, at the early stage of the trade war between uh, the U.S. and China. And um, again, just to give uh, just to give an example of that, um, Trump threw on tariffs. It, it, the announcement came on, in 2017, but the tariffs were actually imposed uh, in early 2018. But you know that, that you could see it coming. Um, and Trump put tariffs on uh, appliances and solar modules, uh, and it technically it applied to everyone, but it was very much aimed at China because uh, they were the biggest provider of those things. So, uh, okay, we went from there. I don't want to debate the tariffs. I actually think they were probably a good idea, maybe overdue, but it's not a policy debate. It's kind of what happened next. Well, China said, all right, we're going to retaliate against the United States. What's the best way to do that? Well, it turns out that the biggest um, soybean producers in the world are the United States and Brazil. The biggest buyer of soybeans in the world is China because they need the protein. So uh, China shifted their soybean purchases from uh, the United States to Brazil. They had been buying them from the United States because we buy so much from China. China said, well, what can we do to minimize the trade deficit with the U.S.? We'll, we'll buy the soybeans. Well, they shift all the soybean orders to Brazil. Well, that's not a phone call. I mean, you've got to scramble transportation lanes. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, Brazilian farmers have to produce more. They need more fertilizer. They need bigger uh, export you know, infrastructure improvements in their facilities in Brazil, um, you know, insurance, a lot of other things uh, involved in that. And um, nobody wants like a six month deal. You want like a three year deal or a five year deal. And they did. They locked that in place. So now all of a sudden the U.S. soybean farmers are like, well, what are we going to do with all these, all these soybeans? China's not buying them. So they well, the Netherlands needed them. So we said, well, we'll sell them to the Netherlands and, you know, for distribution in Europe. But again, you're scrambling all these supply chains because now you're telling the shippers, hey, don't ship out of the Port of Los Angeles, move it to Savannah or Houston or Port Elizabeth near New York, et cetera. And that was all done, but but the costs were huge. Um, it, it created new uh, transportation lines that are not going to flip back anytime soon. They're going These are going to stay in place for years. So U.S. is selling to Europe and China's buying from Brazil. But that's that's one example of, you know, I, d- I doubt um, anyone who's thought it was a good idea to put tariffs on um, Chinese appliances and solar modules realized that they would completely upend the global soybean supply chain, but they did. Uh, and again, that's an example of these complex systems, how they fall apart very easily. For those up in arms with what Trump did, just how much of an effort has the Biden administration made to roll a lot of those policies back? Well, it's a great question because Biden on day one undid every Trump policy they could think of. Uh, um, you know, I mean, he had a stack of executive orders this high on his desk. And he just signed them. I doubt he read any of them, but they were they were ready for that. But trade with China is one thing they have not reversed. They have kept the Trump policies in place. They've actually made them stricter. Uh, in terms of uh, prohibiting U.S. exports of certain semiconductor technology, or the, or if if the U.S. has licensed semiconductor technology to a third party, and it could be in Europe, we've said to that third party, you cannot sell it to China. You cannot sell these semiconductors to China. So, if anything, not only has Biden kept the Trump policies in place, they've toughened them, uh, particularly in the technology and semiconductor areas. So that's not changing. How did the U.S. and global pandemic response add to the supply chain mess? 
Well, that's a great uh, question. The answer is a lot, and I can talk specifically about that, including new things even today as the as the COVID um, pandemic uh, kind of panic continues in China. But um, a lot of people look back over the last couple of years and they go, oh, and we say, you know, what caused the supply chain breakdown? This is um, chapter two of my book. Um, people say, well, uh, it was the pandemic. And then they say, well, no, it was the war in Ukraine. And both of those things had an effect. There's no question about it. But the example I just gave you with the soybeans, that goes back to 2018. Right. Uh, and I have a lot of research on that, which I mentioned in the book. Um, you know, Again, the readers can look up all the source material if they, if they like. Um, but that research was completed um, in uh, December 2019. So the beauty of that is it's like a controlled experiment because it's pre-pandemic. Normally, if you had a tariff war going on and a pandemic going on, and they were both affecting the supply chain. You know, it's very hard to sort those out. It's very hard to separate them, say, well, how much damage did this cause and how much did this cause? But here we have data pre-pandemic, and we know that this really started with the trade wars in 2017, 2018. Now, the pandemic, uh, of course, made it far worse. Uh, you know, you shut down the global economy. It was like turning off a switch. Um, and... Uh, People didn't go out. It, you know, it didn't matter what was in the stores because people weren't going to stores. They were kind of locked in their homes, shopping online, uh, which uh, you know was great for Amazon and Netflix and a few others. But uh, they they still had to get uh, get the supplies. But um, again, I'll give you a concrete example today, right now. Um, if you go to your local pharmacy, CVS or Rite Aid or whatever it may be, Walgreens, um, they're short on um, uh, ibuprofen, uh, Motrin, Advil. Uh, Tamiflu, which is a kind of a hard, you know, a, a strong cough medicine for dealing with the flu, et cetera. Well, why is that? Well, the answer is that almost all of that is made in China. Every, all those, uh, and, um, the drugs, the pain relievers and things you take for fever and flu and so forth are made in China. Well, China has had this ridiculous zero COVID policy for the last three years where they just, you know, they they locked down Shanghai, 26 million people. They locked down Beijing, 22 million people. Nobody in, nobody out. You're locked in your home. Sometimes they even welded um, steel bars, you know, I-beams, small I-beams in front of people's doors so they <laughs> couldn't go outside. They had COVID testing tents every two or three blocks in the city. You couldn't be out unless you had a negative test not more than 48 hours old, which meant you had to be tested three or four times a week just to just to walk around, not, not to mention the masks and all the other nonsense. So that's been going on for a long time. Well, uh, that eventually got to be too much. They had riots, they had demonstrations, social unrest. Communists don't like that. Um, <laughs> it affects their legitimacy. So they said, okay, we're going to ease up on that. And yeah, they sugarcoat. They said, well, the other policy was such a success that now we can you know ease up a little bit. I mean, they they lie about everything, but that was the that was what they said. Well, okay, so they've eased up on the COVID, the zero COVID policy. Literally as of a couple of days ago, by the way. I mean, it took them till right now to realize how terrible of an idea it was, unless like what you're saying, it's just more of a an authoritarian display than it is actually trying to protect the people. That's that's exactly right. Everything we're talking about right now is just literally in a matter of, of days, just over the course of the past week. So, but the Chinese know their own system. They know that uh, if, the, if they say, okay, we're not going to have zero COVID anymore. We're just going to let this thing rip and get to herd immunity, which is what they're going to have to do. Um, they don't have the ICU units. They don't have the oxygen supplies. They don't have the hospital facilities. So people in China are running out 
buying all these pain relievers we just talked about and, and hoarding them at, at home because they're going to have to treat themselves if they get COVID, which they will. Well, guess what? If the Chinese go out and buy five times as much you know, Advil or Motrin or ibuprofen, none of it's coming to the United States. And so we're getting the shortages. But again, what is um, a shortage of ibuprofen and CVS in the U.S. have to do with the zero COVID policy in China? Well, we just explained it. But it, it, it demonstrates how these supply chains are so densely interconnected, so long and so vulnerable that it's a shock over here causes empty shelves over here. Yeah, and I think maybe the most profound impact of the pandemic on this country is something that you do talk about in this book as well, and that is uh, very unnecessary draconian vaccine mandates continuing to be pushed in the face of evidence that contradicted the claim from early 2021 that vaccines keep an individual from catching or spreading COVID. Uh, why was this such a bad thing as it pertains to the supply chain, James? Let me give a specific example to answer your question, Trey, about the supply chain. So um, there's something something called avionics. What is that? Well, avionics are aviation electronics. So when you look in the cockpit of a plane and you see all these dials and gauges and switches and everything, and, you know, radios and tra transmissions, those, that's what avionics are. It's, it's, it's the uh, uh, airborne communications. Now, uh, and they have altimeters and a lot of other, uh, you know, balance uh, uh, indicators and a lot of other gauges and so forth. Now, it turns out, and we also know that 5G is coming out, AT&T and Verizon are rolling out 5G coast to coast. Well, it turns out that a 5G tower in close proximity to an airport will interfere with the avionics on the plane. It actually makes it unsafe. Um, and there are fixes for that. There are ways to just take the avionics and tweak it and modify it and upgrade it so that the 5G won't interfere. So who does that? Well, it turns out that a lot of the avi avionics industry is clustered around Wichita, Kansas, which is not unusual. It's, you know, Silicon Valley, all the tech, you know, big brains are in uh near San Jose, and um, there's a lot of medical research near Raleigh, North Carolina. So the idea that, you know, like-minded people in the same industry cluster in an area is not unusual. And this has been true of the avionics industry since uh, since World War II. So there's nothing new about it. Well, just demographically, uh, it's just the case that a lot of the engineers who do this in the Wichita area, they tend to be in their 40s or 50s, maybe even close to retirement age. They're white and they're men. I mean, not all of them, but it's disproportionately. They didn't want the vaccine. That was I just described a demographic that didn't want the vaccine. Well, but they're all subcontractors of the federal government because they work on military contracts. And so the Biden administration had this vaccine mandate. And they said, if you're in the military or you're a federal contractor, federal employee, you have to have the vaccine. If you don't, you can't work for the federal government. Well, a lot of these guys said, okay, I screw it. I quit. You know, it's like they quit. They um they start their own businesses that were smaller, so they fell below the threshold of where that applied, et cetera. So this caused huge backlogs in avionics upgrades because the people who do it, the engineers, the experts, didn't want the vaccine. Um, but now you, you had this 5G interference. So it got so bad that the Secretary of Transportation and the head of the Federal Communications, uh, uh, sorry, the Federal Aviation Administration signed a joint letter, which was rare, to AT&T and Verizon saying, stop rolling out 5G because we can't fix the avionics. They didn't say because of the COVID mandate, but that was the reason. Um, and AT&T and Verizon pushed back and said, no, we, we got to do this. So um, 
So it got resolved, but it was very inefficient, very messy. But here's an example of how does how does a COVID vaccine mandate cause a thousand flight delays at Christmas in 2021? Well, the answer is what we just explained, which is the people who who didn't want the vaccines were the ones who fixed the avionics who conform to 5G towers, which were going up anyway. Again, another example of how these things are very densely connected and one little breakdown, in this case, um, a, a federal uh, vaccine mandate with nobody thinking through, but you, could this actually cause problems? No one, no one has that question. The answer is it absolutely caused problems. Yeah, and a lot of those flights were also delayed or canceled because pilots were putting their feet down and saying, no to vaccine man, uh, vaccine mandates being insisted upon by the aviation companies too. That's absolutely right. I, I talked about the avionics engineers, but you're right about the pilots. They're they they're very. I know a lot of pilots. They're a very independent breed. They yeah. they make good money, but they kind of go their own way and uh, and can be very stubborn at times. And yeah, they didn't want the the vaccine mandate at all. And and it gets worse because let's say you're. Um, yeah, you know, 58, 59, you're a very seasoned pilot. You've been flying for 30 years, et cetera. Well, when, when you get hit with something like that, you can fight about it. You can go to arbitration or you can retire. A lot of that, they, they make a lot of money and they did. And then they couldn't get new pilots fast enough because a certain age group, uh, not necessarily 65, I'm saying people in their 50s, retired early because of the vaccine mandate because they didn't want to get the vaccine. So then out of that, you get a pilot shortage, pilots calling in sick, pilots retiring early. But then if you can't recruit the new pilots fast enough, because they don't want the vaccine either. Uh, you, yeah, you got you got that. So the airlines were, you know, I remember, again, about this time last year, they were saying, well, all these flights are late because of weather. Well, there's always weather. I mean, it wasn't weather. It was everything we we're talking about. But by the way, the, the particular avionics function that they, they needed to upgrade because of the 5G interference was a, a sophisticated altimeter that told you how far off the off the ground you were. Well, in low visibility, um, if you can't see the horizon, you can't do that manually. Uh, you're relying on that altimeter, and that's exactly what was um, uh, what was broken basically. And they had to what they call placard them, basically disable them, and try to do it visually. But in low visibility, you can't do that. Why is it commonly believed that shelves aren't as fully stocked because cargo vessels were backed up? at the port of LA, when you say that narrative is mostly false? Well, around, again, around this time last year, um, there was a, you know, the supply chain was, was evident. It, it's still, there's still supply chain disruptions, but we're kind of, I wouldn't say used to it, but we're like, yeah, okay, it's messed up. But it was kind of new news in uh, late 2021. So uh, the secretary of uh, uh, commerce goes out to Los Angeles and meets with Gene Soraka, who's the head of the port of Los Angeles. And they wanted to reassure Americans that things were great, you know. And I remember Jen Psaki, uh, press secretary at the time, saying, you know, the, the White House, we saved Christmas. We saved Christmas uh, because, you know, the FedEx packages and the Amazon packages are being delivered. Well, it was true that a lot of the FedEx and Amazon packages were coming in on time. Not all of them, but they were. But that ignores the fact that the ordering is self-selective. In other words, if you're online shopping and you can't get something, it's not, you're not going to order it. You can't order it because it's not there. So the, of course the packages were on time because you could only, you could only order things that they could deliver. All the things they couldn't deliver never got ordered because they weren't there. And so that was a, a, a little bit of a mirage, but getting back to the port uh, facility issue, they were saying, um, then they have all this data and they know all these vessels have GPS. They know where they are. They know where they're trying to get, et cetera. 
And uh, there were about um, 85 or so vessels, large container cargo vessels backed up at the Port of Los Angeles. They couldn't unload because the the facility, the place you, you, know, you take the container off and you put it in like a parking lot, you can only stack them six high for safety reasons. The trucks couldn't get in to move them out because there was a trucker shortage and there were other regulatory impediments to that. So the vessels were just sitting there. So um, so then that number dropped from uh, approximately 85 down to 65 or so. So they said there's a you know, 25% uh, decline in the backup. We're not nearly as backed up as we were. And that was the press conference, right? It wasn't true. What happened was those vessels, they only counted vessels in a certain statistical area about 50 miles offshore and you know 100 miles along the coast. The captains went down to Baja and anchored. They said, I'm not sitting off the coast of LA. It's too expensive. Uh, you know, I don't need to. And they went outside the area. So what the uh, Commerce Secretary was reporting is that the number of vessels in a specific area had gone down, which it did, but the number of total vessels had gone up. It was now uh, over 90, close to 95. They just anchored a little further down. They moored a little further down in Baja. So the backup was actually Trans-Pacific. There were uh, Ningbo is the port near Shanghai, one of the largest ports in the world. Uh, Yokohama, of course, a port near Tokyo. But there were vessels in Yokohama and Ningbo that didn't leave the dock because they said, what's the point of sailing across the Pacific Ocean if I just have to wait in line? It's less expensive just to stay where I am. So you had a Trans-Pacific trans uh, vessel traffic jam, and yet your Secretary of Commerce is out there saying the problem solved. So again, it was just government propaganda. You really have to, again, this information is out there. You have to know where to look. There are certain transportation websites that will tell you this, but the government wasn't. The American Trucking Association, to a point you made a few minutes ago, says there's a shortage of 80,000 drivers right now, a number that is expected to double by 2030. Is there an obvious solution to this problem for you, James? Because uh, short of, I don't know, self-driving trucks, I don't see what is going to reverse this unfortunate trend. Well, uh, there's not a ready solution, there, and there are two causes for this. One is... Um, Again, we talked about pilots and avionics engineers. Well, truckers, the same thing, very independent breed, don't want the vaccines. They had to get, the, they were mandated to get the vaccines in many cases because they were either crossing the Mexican border or they were crossing the Canadian border. Remember with NAFTA, you have a lot of, you know, cross-border trucking deliveries and Canada, Mexico, the United States separately all required anyone coming across the border, you know, unless you're illegal and you cross the Rio Grande, that's a whole different uh, issue, of course. But if you're a trucker coming through a legitimate port of entry, you had to have the vaccine. Well, they didn't uh, in many cases. And they uh, they just said, well, I'll just sit home uh, or you know do, do local routes or whatever it is to avoid having to get the vaccine. In many cases, they retired early. Again, you know, people think of 65 as a normal retirement age and probably is. But, you know, 57, 58, 59 years old, you've been, you know, a trucker for 30 years or whatever, they just said, the heck with it. I'm, I'm not putting up with this. And they quit or retired. Uh, so um, so there was a shortage of truckers, of, of the senior truckers who were just dropping out of the labor force. Now, at the other end, the age spectrum, what about new drivers, recruiting new drivers? Well, what they see, you know, Elon Musk and others have created these uh, autopilots, these driverless trucks. And they're still kind of, I mean, they work. They're still kind of at the testing or experimental phase, but, but they're out there. So and you really can't be a trucker until you're 21. Uh, but there are a lot of people between the ages of 18 and 21 
they're thinking of career choices like, well, you know, what do I want to do? And they're looking at the trucking industry and they're saying, wait a second, in a few years, they're going to have driverless trucks. It's not going to be, they're not going to need the drivers. So why would I go into an occupation that's going to be obsolete in a few years? The answer is you wouldn't. You'd go do something else, a lot of other things to do. So the older drivers are retiring or quitting early. The younger drivers are not coming in because they think they're going to be put out of work by driverless trucks. So there's no solution to the shortage. Uh, and you're right, it was the American Trucking Association's estimated about 80,000, but that's getting worse all the time. How has energy become a major problem for supply chain management? When people think of energy, like, oh, I got to put gas in my car, I have to heat my home, and and that's right. And you, 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 know, you need the lights on, and that depends on the power grid. So people get that, um, and they understand prices are going up, home heating prices have kind of tripled. In the, in the U.S., sorry, in the, in the in Europe, in the European Union, they've gone up by a factor of 10. In the U.S., they've more than doubled, which is a, a lot, but they're going up around the world. So people see that firsthand. And, you know, you go to, uh, you have a Ford F-150 pickup truck and it used to cost you $75 to fill up your truck. Now it costs $150 and you do that twice a week. Well, that's that's $150 of extra gasoline. And in that case, uh, there's what what economists call uh, inelastic demand, and that's just a fancy way of saying you got to buy it no matter what. You know, you you might not like it, of course you don't, but uh, you know you got to get to work, get the kids to school, move things, do your job, whatever it is. So you're going to pay that price. But that extra hundred and fifty dollars a week, seventy five dollars for fill up twice a week, let's say, comes out of something else. I mean, if you if you have to pay it at the gas pump, you're you know you're going to skip a dinner out, you're not going to go to a concert. Uh, a sporting event, uh, maybe a new dress, a new suit, whatever it may be, you're not you're not going to buy those discretionary items because you're forced to pay more at the pump, and that's going to take the U.S. economy into a recession. That's coming very soon. It's really really starting now, but um, the energy input is so much more than that. It is everything we just talked about. We've been talking about trucks moving from you know from a a dock to a distribution center, from a distribution center to uh, a warehouse to an end user, et cetera, they all run on diesel. You know, let's use a train. Trains run on diesel. Cargo vessels run on diesel. So um, there's no part of the supply chain. Manufacturing assembly lines, they run on electricity from the grid. There's no part of the supply chain that doesn't run on energy. So it's not just what you see, I meaning gas at the pump and home heating oil. It's everything you wear, touch, buy, sell, use, et cetera. There's an energy input to it. And when you raise... Uh, diesel costs in, in, the, in this example, um, you say, well, it's too bad for the trucker. He's got to pay more. Well, he does. But they pass that along in terms of uh, the cost of goods. You just add it to the cost of goods. And so um, that makes everything more expensive. And that's been a big source of the inflation we're seeing. Why do you consider China to be the biggest loser and the U.S. to be the biggest winner of a global supply chain failure? Well, China is going to be in very serious shape, very bad shape with or without the supply chain breakdown, but the supply chain breakdown makes it worse. And by the way, we saw just yesterday, um, the data came out and Chinese exports uh, crashed and Chinese imports from the rest of the world crashed uh, and their trade uh, surplus, uh, it didn't disappear, but it was it shrank uh, significantly. So that's an early warning of what we've been talking about, which is this coming recession. But China's list of problems, I mean, first of all, there's this notion out there that 
you know, the, the 20th century was the American century and the 21st century is going to be the Chinese century. And they're going to soon be the largest economy in the world. They're going to blow past the United States, build up the military, create technology, dominate the, the planet, certainly the Western Pacific and East Asia and Central Asia for the next hundred years. Everything I just said is a myth. I mean, that's the, the rap that you hear. None of it's true. And here's why. First of all, um, China, 50% of the water in China is poisoned, not just like dirty, you got to clean it up, poisoned. Because, um, I mean, I, I invest in the, in the mining industry. I know that in the United States and Canada, you use cyanide to leach gold. It's one of the ways you get gold out of, out of ore. Well, you're using a certain amount of cyanide. You got to weigh it. When you're done, you got to weigh it. And you better account for every, you know, gram of whatever cyanide you're using. You can't just dump it. Well, in China, they do. They just dump it in the rivers and a lot else besides. And those rivers are poison. That water is undrinkable. And China doesn't have enough water to begin with. A lot of it's it's high plateau. I mean, people the pictures of rice paddies. Yeah, southeastern China, there's some of that, but but not that much. Uh, most of it's desert in the west, uh, mountains in Tibet, high plateau from Beijing up to Manchuria. Um, it's very dry. And uh, again, you've got these cities of 22, 23 million people. Where are they getting the water? So that's a problem. Pollution is a problem. I was once in Beijing and... Um, I came down the lobby of the hotel. I was waiting for a driver and I looked outside and I was like, oh, it's pouring rain, you know? So I better, I went over to the concierge to get an umbrella and the guy looked at me funny and I looked outside again. It wasn't raining. It was just black with soot. The sky was black. Oh. So that's that's China, okay? And, don't, and, uh, and that's just the reality. So, uh, but they've got, um, they've got a real estate collapse, which makes what happened here in the United States in 2007 look like a, a picnic. Um, it's, uh, you know, calling it a bubble is an understatement, uh, in China, you know, here you, you buy a house, you get a mortgage to pay for it. The, the guy shows up at closing, gives you the check, you sign the note, you pay off the mortgage over however long in China, they do it differently in China. You take the mortgage, there's no house and you give the money to a builder and he builds you the house. In other words, the house is kind of on the common. It could be, we're an apartment for that matter, a condo, whatever it may be. You get the mortgage and then that money goes to the builder and he uses that to actually build the house. Now, in theory, you end up with the house and the mortgage. It's the same end result, but you start out by signing on the debt and not having a house. Well, what happened was the developers took that money and either scammed it or lost it or used it on other things. And now there's a whole, there, there are tens of millions of people in, in China who have mortgages, but don't have houses because the builders went bankrupt. But the banks are saying, pay the mortgage. So that's caused some you know, riots and demonstrations and so forth. But that's how bad it is in China. Um, but And there's there's a lot else besides you know, excessive debt. Um, the reserves are being drawn down. There's a dollar shortage in China. Um, uh, you know, they, you know, the banks prop up industry and the government props up the banks, but how long can you do that before you just run out of dollars and then you're, you know, then you're risking hyperinflation. But the biggest problem of all, and this is not, uh, it's been thoroughly researched, but not well understood or well disseminated. China is facing the greatest demographic catastrophe in the history of the world. They're going to lose 600 million people in the next 70 years. Today, their population is 1.4 billion by around the year uh, 2100. So, you know, uh, 75 years from now, approximately, they're going to be down to about 800 million. They're going to lose 600 million people. 
Now, in any economy, I can give you all kinds of fancy definitions of GDP, but the simplest definition is how many people are working and how productive are they? Just this times this equals your nominal GDP. Well, how are you going to have a economic growth if you're losing 600 million people? Well, first of all, you're not. Secondly, um, of the people around today, uh, and this is all because the birth rate is collapsed. Uh, the replacement birth rate is 2.1. So if a couple have 2.1 children, of course, nobody has 0.1 children, but on average, obviously, uh, that will maintain the population at a constant level. People go, why not two? You know, two people have two people, isn't that constant? Well, the answer is infant mortality and other problems that, um, that you know, not every child makes it to maturity so they can have more children. But 2.1 does it. That's a that's a break even that keeps the population flat. China, uh, they lie about their statistics. They admit 1.7. Uh, some estimates are 1.2. Some people think it could be below one. Uh, they're just not having children. And um, by the way, it's the same is true around the world. This is a problem in the United States. We deal with it partly through immigration, which is a whole separate issue. But uh, but China's population is imploding. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't mean, uh, but of those who are alive, they're getting older. So not only do you have no replacement birth rate on a declining population, but the people you do have are getting older. There's a very high correlation between people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and it gets worse as you get older with uh, Alzheimer's, um, Parkinson's disease, dementia, and various kinds of cognitive decline. I'll reserve my opinion on the current occupant of the White House. But the point being, uh, that is uh, that is a correlation. Those are incurable diseases. They're progressive diseases, meaning they get worse. You can't cure them. So what do you do? Well, you have caretakers. Uh, and so as the population ages and as the cognitive decline increases, more and more of the population are going to have to be caregivers to that older population, that octogenarian, the nonagerian population. That's a very worthy occupation, but it doesn't lend itself to productivity gains. Giving someone a bath hasn't changed in 5,000 years. I mean, robots don't do baths. Um, the biggest innovation was around 1870, 1940. We got indoor plumbing and hot water. Okay, nice going. That's great. But that's about it. So, so you have a, decl a rapidly declining population with a rapidly aging population at the same time, vastly increased uh, cognitive decline, dementia, and more and more people taking care of those older people, which means they can't be in the factory making iPhones. So this is um, worse than the Black Death of the 14th century, worse than the Thirty Years' War, worse than the Spanish flu by an order orders of magnitude. Um, and tell me how you're going to drive your economy with that, with that future. And the answer is you can't. So China's in a long, very long-term, meaning multi-century state of decline, economically, financially, demographically, uh, from a pollution perspective and otherwise, it's it'll be a complete basket case. That doesn't mean they're not dangerous. Uh, in fact, there's some theory that they may be more dangerous because um, if you were on a, uh, an, an, an increasing path, you were getting stronger, you know, more productive, uh, more technology, et cetera, and you want to do something like invade Taiwan or confront the United States and South China Sea, you would wait. You say, well, hey, I think the U.S. is in decline. We're on the rise. Why not wait until we get even stronger so our chances of success go up? Uh, but if you were on a declining path, and there's the theory I'm describing, uh, uh, the two scholars, Hal Brands and Michael Becky, advanced this. Um, they call it peak China. And the idea is it's not that China's stronger than the United States today. They're not. 
but this may be as good as it gets. That that decline that's coming in the near future, or we started now, is going to make it less likely that they'll have success. So they might, if you're China and you're thinking about invading Taiwan, there might be no better time to do it than right now. And we saw this in 1939 uh, with Japan, and of course in 1941 when they attacked Pearl Harbor. Nobody thought Japan was more powerful than the United States, but they said the U.S. is getting on a war footing. President Roosevelt was building up the military. They said, this is our best chance. Uh, same thing with Germany in World War I. Um, nobody thought the German fleet was stronger than the Royal Navy. They weren't. But Germany said you know, correctly, hey, this is as good as it gets for us. If we're going to do it, do it now. So China may do something similar in Taiwan, which has obviously, uh, that'll make the supply chain breakdown seem like, uh, uh, I could say, a picnic. But um, but no, China's in a, in a long-term state of decline. It's going to get a lot worse. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people may not realize this, but Taiwan is uh, pretty singularly responsible for semiconductors, which is uh, what helps this world to operate. Does the announcement that was made uh, by Apple with regards to uh, putting semiconductor plants in Arizona, uh, how much does that accelerate potentially the uh, timeline for China trying to invade Taiwan, knowing uh, the control that they would have over a technology that is so important to the rest of the world? Uh, it's definitely a factor. Apple's doing that. They um, it's not the kind of thing you can do overnight. Obviously, the um, uh, the Foxconn uh, iPhone assembly plant, other Apple product assembly plants in China are huge. Uh, but yeah, they are starting to shift some of the production to um, uh, India. Uh, they'll be looking at other places in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and elsewhere. Uh, but there's something else kind of going to your uh, trade, going to your semiconductor point. So the largest, most sophisticated semiconductor company in the world by far is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation in Taiwan. Um, in recent months, they've announced $40 billion of new investment in semiconductor fabrication plants, what they call fabs, in Arizona, the Phoenix area. Uh, so wait a second. Uh, and these are like these are going to be like five and you know, three and five nanometer production facilities, the most sophisticated in the world. And like, wait a second, you're a Taiwan semiconductor. You could build this in Taiwan. You could build it in China. You could build it in a lot of places. Why are you building it in Arizona? It's exactly what we've been talking about, which is these these stretched extended supply chains are so vulnerable that you have to shorten them. We you know get closer to customers. This is going to be very good news for the U.S. economy, by the way. I think we're going to be in a really bad recession next year, but over a three to five year horizon, it's very good news. This is onshoring. Some people call it friendshoring, but these are high paying jobs. These are you know not everyone's a PhD engineer, but if you're working in that plant, you've got some training and skilled work, high wages, good benefits, etc. So um, so that's good. But so what's Taiwan Semiconductor thinking? Well, they're saying. To your point, um, the U.S. military is something called the broken nest theory. And the broken nest theory is based on a Chinese proverb. It says, if the nest is broken, how can the eggs survive? And the answer, of course, is they can't. The eggs will be broken, too. So if China invades Taiwan, the U.S. military is going to destroy Taiwan Semiconductor, all their facilities, all of them, burned to the ground, bombed, whatever it takes, uh, because we don't want the Chinese to get them. Now, Taiwan Semiconductor knows this. So they're like, okay, we, we want to survive as a company. We'll start our plants, building our plants in Arizona. So this is an example of whether you want to call it onshoring, friendshoring, shortened supply chains, whatever. It's going to raise costs somewhat, but it's going, but we never count the invisible costs. So the, the visible costs, we, you know, reduce 
costs and transportation costs, et cetera, they're apparent. They show up in you know cheaper costs for consumers. But the invisible costs, the kinds of things we're talking about, things being destroyed, supply chains breaking down, goods not being available at all, they're going to be reduced. So it's a good trade. Uh, and again, very negative for China, very good for the United States. Uh, gosh, I hate that we haven't gotten to inflation yet and uh, its role in the supply chain and vice versa. Also, uh, deflation and then supply chain 2.0, but all the more reason for people to go out and buy the new book, Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chains, Surging Inflation and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. He is James Rickards. Nice enough to join me for the hour to talk about things. James, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this book. Thanks, Trey. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time. Books on Pod.